Hey, just a heads up that the following content may be disturbing or triggering for some listeners and is not appropriate for children. Please take care of yourself and others who may be listening with you. Welcome to the Bonus Babies Podcast, a show that has no easy answers, only hard questions. I feel that my, my adult life has not been as challenging. So I went through it all already. And so that's what I tell our young folks. I was like, you've... you've You've been through a lot, and you've already um, managed more than so many people, and you've made it through. And now you have this foundation of knowing what you can make it through. What I would tell my 15-year-old self is, like, it was hard, um, but you're going to be okay, and life life will be okay. Can you tell me what you call the kids who you've cared for over the years? We feel that the children that we receive coming into our home are bonuses. So we call them bonus babies. I love that. This is your host, Jane Amelia Larson, and I'm a CASA volunteer, a court-appointed special advocate for youth in foster care. Yeah, I know it's a mouthful. In the same way a CASA works, I explore all things in the foster care maze by talking to kids, parents, caregivers, attorneys, social workers, therapists, anybody and everybody who will speak to me to keep the conversation open and the information flowing about all things CASA. My guest today is a remarkable woman with many, many talents. She works with kids. She works with nature. She works as an artist. She's also a former foster youth who had some really rough teenage years, but she got up and out of it, and now she helps others do the same. Unfortunately, there were some technical difficulties in the recording, and in spite of the tremendous efforts of my engineers, it's not really solved. But I think her story is really important, so here it is. Oh, and there was a cat involved, her cat actually, but it's not his fault. So here's Diane Martell. Hi, so I'm here with Diane Martell. Thank you, Diane, for coming on. Hi. So I'm just going to get right into this um, because you're a person I admire very, very much, the work that you do at Peace for Kids, and I want to know, how did you, where are you from, and how did you end up in Los Angeles? I think it's a really wonderful path. I was born in Canada. I was adopted at six months old, and shortly after I was adopted, my adoptive family moved to Northern California, to the Bay Area, Mm -hmm. Concord, you seem like a no-cal girl, actually, now that I hear that. Yeah. <laughs> I, do love, I do love San Francisco, that's for yeah. sure. It's one of my favorite cities. So my path certainly took a, a few turns, but I did end up down at college at Cal State Long Beach. And I went there for a few years and then went back up to Northern California and uh, had one of my most favorite jobs. And that was as an arts and crafts director at a YMCA camp. I highly recommend it. <laughs> if anybody's you learned a lot about yourself, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's amazing. It was because I wasn't a camp counselor. I had a little more freedom to, to do what I wanted during the day. And my best friend from college was also there. And uh, she was the head wrangler. So we would go horseback riding in the morning and then 
know, eat a big breakfast. And then I would work with kids teaching them how to. Okay, for our listeners, a cat just walked across the screen. <laughs> if you hear purring, you know what's going on. <laughs> you know what's going on. Um, anyways, long story short, that brought me back to Northern California. And I was going to come back down to Long Beach and just couldn't quite convince myself to go. So I looked at apartments in San Francisco, and an apartment in San Francisco was the same price as a one-way ticket to London. And so I decided to take the one-way ticket to London. So I ended up in Europe for a couple of years. I worked in a pub. Oh, cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, Yeah, I worked in a pub in Farringdon. I didn't realize how expensive London would be. I had one goal. I was 20 at the time. I was going to go to the Hippodrome, and I was going to buy a Tom Collins, and I was going to dance the night away. So I (laughs) accomplished that goal, but spent some money along the way, so I had to get a job pretty quickly. Met a lot of folks who travel. I was supposed to go to Thailand, and so I saved enough money to take the train to Paris, to Rome, and then I was flying from Rome to Thailand, and then from Thailand to Australia, and I was going to work my way back home. Uh, Along the way, I was at the uh, hostel in Paris, and I met an Australian, and they said, was it difficult to get your visa for Australia? It's like, visa? Hmm. What do you mean, visa? Hmm. She's like, you need a visa? And I was like, oh. So I go to the Australian consulate and she said, well, how many, how much money will you have when you land in Australia? A lot. She said, well, she's like, I'd love to give you a visa, but they'll deport you at your own cost. So I'm not going to do that. So I ended up in Italy and I stayed in Italy for a year, almost a year and a half. They say if I would have stayed any longer, I wouldn't have come back. But uh, I ended up back into Los Angeles, where I reconnected with my best friend from college, stayed on her floor until I reestablished myself in L.A. And I have been in L.A. ever since. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're like a lot of people, and this happened to me too, that I came and I thought I would end up going to many, many other places, but I stayed in L.A. I I love it here. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or rather... If I had a lot of money, I'd go all over the place mm. uh, and spend time elsewhere. So let me ask you, I know, you, so you were adopted when you were a baby, mm-hmm. and, but you also spent time in the foster care system as a teenager? I did, yeah, when I was around 15, 16. It's not a story I disclose often or at all. Um, But I was removed from my house when I was 15, 16 years old because of uh, physical and and sexual abuse. And my family was, it wasn't the easiest time growing up. I subsequently went to a lot of therapy and my therapist, really, really wonderful man, sagely identified that, that frequently consciously or subconsciously, when people are coming from an abusive situation, from a a multi-general abusive situation, they'll kind of plan to abuse somebody else. And so I have four older brothers, and when they adopted me, they really wanted a girl, a family. So I came to learn that both of my adopted parents had been physically and potentially uh, sexually abused, and how that crosses over generations is really 
really quite interesting. I see. But uh, I was taken in by a really wonderful couple, my English teacher. Let me, let me just ask you, though. So did you reach out for help or did somebody figure out what was going on? And how did that work? That's a great question. I was documenting my experiences in a journal to my English teacher. And the abuse had actually subsided, but then it started to pick up again. And so I began to disclose my experiences in this journal. And this journal was handed in, I think, like on a monthly basis. So my teacher wasn't aware of it immediately, but my journal was in my locker. Mm -hmm. And uh, something had happened at home where my adopted mom was rather mistrusting of, of me. And I think that, I don't know, I had lip balm or lip gloss, and she was wondering where I gotten it a teenage thing yeah, a teenage had, thing and so she wanted to go check out my locker mm-hmm. and uh, of course I knew that you know she was going to discover this this notebook and so um, so I ran away so that really lifted the lid off of my yeah. experiences and, and what I was going through and of course the school you know un- unbeknownst to me at the time as mandated reporters um, had to report and so that really kind of shifted things. Right. So you, did you end up in, 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 in custody of some kind and then end up with the English teacher? Uh, I ended up, my mom put me in a convent. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. So my family was very uh, religious and very connected to the church. So off away, I went to the convent, which was, you know, as a 16-year-old girl, just I was lost, right? Yeah, and the therapy yeah. we went to was um, via a priest. And a, we were very concerned about remedying my parents' uh, relationship because they felt that that was sort of the genesis of what had occurred. And as a 16-year-old, I, it was not my concern. And it wasn't very effective being in the convent. I think one of the most pivotal things that happened in my life, and it's a... Uh, Something that I share when I connect with young folks in our community is my mom had the option, and I understood as I've uh, matured and progressed into adulthood, she had a choice that my dad leave the house or I leave the house. So she chose me to leave the house. And I think that was her way to keep me safe at the time, but it broke my heart. Yeah, sure. You know, I was in a, in a space I didn't understand why I was the one who was uh, needed to be ostracized when I wasn't the one to blame. Right. And did you feel like she was blaming you as well? Or they, I mean, perhaps it felt that way because she was sending you away. Yes. No, there had been situations, you know, previous experiences that, that she had placed the blame squarely, squarely on you. So, yeah. So, um, the therapy via the Catholic Church (laughs) just was not successful. And it was the first time in in my life that I I advocated for myself. And I said I didn't want to go back and I wanted to make a shift and I didn't want to live in a convent. And so it was at that time as a kind of temporary solution that Wendy and and Phil uh, offered to open their house. And, and that was your English teacher? Yeah, yeah. of a dysfunctional 16-year-old come, come mm-hmm. to stay. 
Mm-hmm. And how was that? Uh, amazing. It was, and I advocated through the process, and it was really wonderful to see. For me, it was really quite a space of normality that I had not experienced growing up. So it was a really, really wonderful experience. Yeah, it's really amazing when caring adults step up and they can make a big difference in kids' lives. and Huge difference. Right, and yeah. of course, that's what you're doing on a regular basis at Peace for Kids. So I want to get to that because I know that there was a circuitous route for you to find Peace for Kids, mm-hmm. but a really, a really compelling one. So will you tell me about that? Sure, sure. And I do, uh, you know, for Wendy and Phil, and, and uh, I think it's important to, to share that there was actually a fissure in our relationship, and it was only due to me, because I wasn't aware of how to maintain relationships. So mm. I basically dropped out of school, and I wasn't proud of it, and I didn't know how to tell them that, and so I didn't. <laughs> And then the gap grew, and I didn't have things to communicate. But 25 years later, we have reunited and made that connection. And a lot of uh, the work I do in honor of what they had done for me mm-hmm. as, a, as a young person, because I think it's very important for adults to, to step up. So I think it's important to honor them in that. Right. Do you think that they were just, like, figuring out how to do it as because you landed in their lap? Oh, for sure. Or, yeah, they didn't have kids of their own. They they, they did after I had uh, left, but yeah. Good on them, huh? Oh, yeah, for sure. But how I found Peace for Kids, I was connected to Peace for Kids through a colleague. I had a long career at the Coffee Bean and Tea Leaf, and, and one of my... Oh, yeah, that made you famous, right? <laughs> <laughs> It's some of my fame. Can I hear about that too? <laughs> it's going to be a little bit. It's not going to be all my fame, uh, but okay. it, is a little bit of, it is a little bit of fame. That's for sure. So I was at the coffee bean. Well, I guess it was like post coffee bean, but my colleague Joe connected and he said, I, you know, I do work with this wonderful organization and we are about to have a board retreat and I am looking for some team building activities for a way to work on our mission statement, etc. And so I started giving him all of these potential opportunities or options to, to work with. And I knew Joe and Joe is a, is a wonderful man, a man of few words. And I could tell that he was kind of shifting towards or moving me towards like, can, can you just do it? <laughs> Instead of giving oh, me... Oh, so he was like making a path for you to like yes. actually do what yeah, he wanted yeah, yeah. to do. And it sounds like it would be valuable for somebody to come and facilitate. He's like, yes, that's my direct ask. So I went out to Palm Springs for a Peace for Kids board retreat that was, I guess, about 12 years ago. And facilitated some team building exercises and a, an exercise around revamping a mission statement. So it was really, really wonderful. We went to, to dinner that night as, uh, to connect and team build and get to know each other a little bit more. And through this whole process, they didn't know that I had a foster care experience. 
and all of the people at the table were some of the, the most fantastic people I had yet, had met as of yet. I was like, gosh, these people are just really wonderful and, and I would really like to spend more time. So after they discovered my experience, they turned around pretty quickly and invited me to be on the board. And then shortly after that, it was sort of this culmination, this vortex of, of things happening. The co-founder, Marnie Otway, was moving to New Zealand and so stepping down as board chair. So within six months, I assumed the role of chair of the board and for six years volunteered my time in that capacity. Mm. So I, I want to ask you, and this might be a difficult question to answer, but I'm assuming from what you've said so far, that your experience of abuse, you put aside, you put it like in a, like a pocket, like in your back pocket or mm-hmm. in a closet. And working now with youth who've spent time in foster care, does that bubble up for you now regularly? Have you had to confront that, resolve that, or do you feel like that's been a process that's happening throughout your life? Yeah, I feel that I'm a really amazing therapist. And that's a whole other story that we'll uh, mm-hmm. have to spend another day on. But Dr. Felix Pohl, and he taught this wonderful technique in which it helped me to organize my experiences, emotions, and feelings. So it was a really wonderful process in which I could allow feelings to emerge, not emerge. It was almost that like first step in boundary taking, right? Allowing experiences to come in, people to come in or, or not in, in your life. So it was a really wonderful methodology. And then also working through experiences. So it was a way for you to understand and also process your feelings? And my experiences, for sure. Mm-hmm. But I can see the sort of foundation of what it was at the time and how it's manifested and evolved into a way to effectively self-reflect and connect with myself and to also support others. Right. And can you tell me about the work that you do now with Peace for Kids? You're a program coordinator, manager. You actually develop the programs, but you deal with the kids so much. It seems to me, I mean, I know I've learned so much from you just watching you. I, th- I mentioned this to you recently and you said, oh, I, well, there's been so many experiences like that. But I remember you dealing with a little, with a toddler, basically, maybe he was four. And he just had a total meltdown, complete and total meltdown out of the blue, it seemed. And you just comforted him for about a half an hour while crying and screaming, crying and screaming. And it's like you knew that you just needed to let him do that and to to get to the other side of that. You know, I think something that's really beautiful about Peace for Kids is its reciprocal nature, the value that I receive from engaging. So my official title is Program Consultant. I found that as I have evolved in my my work, I hone in on the things that I have great strengths and assets, and I also have great passion. So I do work in organizing and organizational development and organizing, creating, and developing programs. And then also, I think what's really valuable is knowledge transfer. Mm. And I think that you can learn how to engage with children in a very meaningful way. And I have had 
the, the wonderful benefit of engaging in some of that learning at Peace for Kids and in turn teaching other folks to do it. So, you know, they have the, the old saying, if you want to know something, read about it. If you want to understand it, write about mm-hmm. it. If you want to master it, teach it. So the more that I engage with folks and how to engage with young people in a very meaningful and cathartic way, I think the better skilled I become. And it's actually really quite amazing to me that one of the most important aspects of what we do as human beings is developing and raising the next generation that Mm. there's no required teaching. (laughs) I think there's so much to know. So here we expect to learn via what has been done, you know, what we've experienced. My experience growing up was not something I wanted to emulate or use as techniques. You know, it's fascinating to me to, to be able to learn these later in life. And certainly when I engage with other people's children, I'm quite successful. And they like, oh, you, you, you're like, you'd be such a good mother. I'm like, okay, I just, I'm a good person. And this is how I think it's important to engage with our children because I didn't have I didn't have some of those experiences when I was little and one of the things that sticks out to me in my foster care experience or in my my youth and my development is you know the teachers that called me liars who like why are you doing this and I was lying to be protective of a, an abusive family right and also exhibiting signs of somebody who had experienced trauma by my behavior. And Zaid, our executive director, and I, we've had this conversation a number of times of why didn't any adult know or do something? Because it was obvious by what I was exhibiting that there was Mm -hmm. some issues somewhere that I was struggling. And so I see that today when I see our, our young folks. It's like somebody's got to stand up for and see and see when something's, you know, when they're having a real struggle, that it's not innately them, but something that they've experienced. So I have found the pedagogy of Peace for Kids and its constant evolution. We, like the foster care experience, are evolving and adaptable and growing and learning and applying new principles. And so that's probably what you saw in action. <laughs> yeah, it was just, it also it was astounding because you didn't try to stop him from expressing his feelings and from being in anguish. You weren't trying to calm him down. Well, you're trying to calm him down, yes, but you weren't saying, you're okay, quiet, quiet, or, you know, you're, you, know, you weren't trying to stop him from exploding. You were just letting him do that mm-hmm. in order to get it out of his system because you knew that was ever happening in him psychically and emotionally he needed to get through and to process. Well, and it's uh, that's how we evolve the, the haves, our, our way of connecting with young folks, right? It's to hear and to acknowledge, to validate. I, I see you are struggling right now. And it doesn't necessarily mean that a lot of people are like, oh, you got to have a strong hand with kids. It's like, you don't have to agree with their struggle, but you can acknowledge the struggle. Right, right. And when, you know, frequently that's what somebody wants is to like, yes, this is how I'm feeling and let me feel this way for a little bit. And then articulating that, understanding why they would feel that way. And it's a, a model in which we hope that a young person will take on themselves, right? 
the more that they see it modeled for them, that they'll self-initiate this process in the future where I can see why I'm upset right now and, and be able right, to watch that's themselves ideal. through. Yeah. Yeah. To, to be able yeah, to shift. Yeah, I mean, I, I aspire to that now as an adult. <laughs> I For think sure, about right? that. <laughs> like, how do I take care of myself? How do I calm myself down? Especially now, um, in the time of COVID, I, I'm, and people don't know this about me, but I'm extremely anxious. Mm. And I don't even, I didn't, don't even actually know it that much myself. And then I, I look at how I'm behaving and realize um, that it's really true, that it's... Yeah. It's true for all of us. So, so how did that adjustment happen for you at Peace for Kids? Did you start out really good? Did you, you've, you, you talked about that you've evolved in your ability to do the work that you're doing. Yes. Uh, well, we get a lot of practice, you know, so there's mm-hmm. a lot of young folks and it's not to say, uh, we say that sometimes our Saturday is an incubator, but it's an incubator for understanding how to honor children in uh, a most powerful way. So you can definitely feel when you got it wrong, right? And there's an experience that stands out to me of a young person, probably similar in age to the the young person you saw me with. And the young person was really struggling and would really kind of act out and be unsafe with themselves and unsafe with the community and... You know, the teacher uh, who is uh, like most amazing with young folks was, was struggling as well and trying to manage, a, you know, 16 to, to 24 to 6 year olds is uh, that's a Herculean effort sometimes, particularly wow, when yeah, somebody's really. choosing to, you know, dance on the tables and throw things. And, and so that particular experience, I needed to restrain a young person and, and we were certified in uh, techniques and in, in which to restrain in a thoughtful, thoughtful way. I removed the young person from the room and they were really unhappy and continued to act out. And I was trying to you know, restrain from behind. It felt just awful. It didn't feel right. And I knew, I knew the, the practical steps, but the practical steps was not getting the result that, that I wanted. And right, they weren't working. They right. were not working, yeah. and so yep, and that happens. So, uh, you know, the the day ended. The, the young person eventually calmed down, and but I felt it created a real fissure in our relationship. That there was a sense of trust loss. Like, why were you doing this to me? You know, one of the things that we do at the end of every program day at Peace for Kids is we debrief. And so you can get the, you know, get collective feedback from folks. And and I received some really wonderful feedback about how I could have described more what I was doing, inviting the young person into the process, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You mean like saying, I'm going to, I'm going to hold you now yeah. so that you stop flailing about. You might hurt yourself or hit someone else, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So being very verbal with them and having an adult conversation with them about what you're doing, why you're doing it. And that made sense to me. And I didn't invite them into the solution. So that was years ago. And this young person is still involved with Peace for Kids. And the wonderful thing, the wonderful thing, it took a long time to reconnect and and build that trust. And now I sense that we have a real genuine relationship. 
So when you say a long time, like three years, four years? Five years. Five years of seeing them almost every Saturday. Yeah. Wow. And so that also, to me, is a great indicator of how important it is to get it right the first time yeah, and to right. really to really practice and and through this process that we've developed there there is no no restraint happening there's no there's very little punitive if any mm-hmm. punitive engagement at peace for kids there's no suspensions there's no restraint there's no you know so through this method of communication and connection you can kind of avoid all those things and it takes time to build relationships and it takes time to develop the skills. And I think it takes the ability to be self-reflective in the moment to say, hmm, that wasn't really, you know, what I wanted to do. And, you know, there's been a few folks who we've come back at the end of the debrief and it's like, we have done everything. I don't, I don't have any other techniques left, but mm. you get collective energy from the group and you recommit and say, all right, we will try something different and the next time this young person comes in. Then you see success. This particular person, a different person, has shifted. You know? And it's a culmination of things, right? It's not just peace for kids, but it's a caregiver who's been consistent, a caregiver who says, you're not going to be 7 or 14 days. And I'm going to, you know, bring a sibling in, your sibling in as well. So you have some, some level of comfort. And so all of these things you could see really shifting this young person's experience to feel a little more grounded in who and who they are as a, a human. It's been really, really beautiful to watch. Yeah, you know, I, I remember being struck by, and I'm, I've written about this, but my first days at Peace for Kids as a volunteer, I was kind of perplexed by these kids that would come in and start immediately looking for their siblings. They'd say, where's my sister? Where's my sister? Have you seen my brother? And I thought that was odd because I thought, well, why don't they know where they are? Mm -hmm. Uh, Didn't they come with them? Mm -hmm. And then somebody, maybe you, explained to me, well, they're not living with their brother or sister. They're in different foster homes. So the only time they get to see each other is on Saturdays. And that's why they would be frantically looking for their older brother or little sister because they hadn't seen them all week. Mm-hmm. And I was just so struck by that. And and then I, I started thinking, well, what is actually Peace for Kids, the organization? How do the kids get there? Who comprises the Peace for Kids community? Can you explain that to me? Because I think a lot of people don't understand how foster care works. Sure. Um, that it's that, you know, they think that's taking kids in, but actually it's really often dispersing kids is what it's actually doing. Mm-hmm. So can, can, you, can you talk about how, the, how, how the, the families and caregivers work to bring kids at Peace for Kids? Sure. Peace for Kids is very much a word of mouth organization. And we've done that intentionally, right? Our goal has never to be the, the biggest, but to be the most thoughtful and how we can engage and honor an experience of a young person while they're in our environment. Caregivers tell caregivers, and even if children are reunified with their biological families, they're still welcome to, to join us because, you know, I think one of the, the things that is of value is that when a young person comes in to Peace for Kids, they have the quick discovery that most of the people there have had a foster care experience. All the kids have. Right. And many of the volunteers, Many too, of the volunteers, actually. yeah, for sure. Right. 
Mm-hmm. And so when you can reflect on and empathize with their experience, it's really quite compelling. And to see their, their little eyeballs light up, light up is, is really a wonderful thing. So we do have uh, relationships with DCFS, and some folks get recommended through there, caregiver referrals, and community referrals. And then where we're really, I don't want to say it's shifting our energy, as I alluded to earlier, that, that our Saturday program is a, a bit of an incubator, right, of how to... And we worked with some young folks for a really, really long time. <laughs> so we can, mm-hmm. we can understand yeah. uh, a little more holistically um, our efforts and how they have, you know, either worked or not worked. And again, we can kind of shift the dial. And so one of our goals as an organization is to communicate this out to the, the greater public, right? And to how how we engage with our young people and how everybody engages with, with young people can be really make a difference on this planet, right? And how we connect and honor and elevate our, our young folks. We have a book club at Peace for Kids and we finished a book over the summer. We started it with the racial reckoning around George Floyd. And so one of the books we read is called Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. The author is really, uh, really a wonderful and compelling author, Dr. Joy. The opening of the book is a Maasai quote and is, how are the children? That's what they'll ask. How are the children? Not how are your children, but how are the children? Mm. And if more people asked, how are the children? It really tells us, society, you know, from a society standpoint, how we are in, engaging and are we we're doing the right things when we ask, how are the children? That was one of the most compelling things I've read that quickly adopted at Peace for Kids. And it's always coming through, how are, how are the children? Are they okay? And what can we do mm-hmm. to support them on their journey? Let me ask you, um, I know that art is very important in your life, not only because of expression, but because of the of the healing nature of art. Mm. And there's a lot of those activities at, at Peace for Kids that encourage the artistic expression. But I, I want to talk about art in your own life. Mm. Did that start at an early age? And how, how is it happening now? Yes, there are, there are a few things that I engaged in early on and building, you know, kind of my insular little world I was a prolific reader. So I could read... I don't know, probably 10, 12 books a week. I read a lot. (laughs) Wow. Uh, Mm -hmm. Then I also began to draw early on, and I have some great talent. And um, so when I, actually when I went to to college or as I was graduating high school, I was taking AP courses and um, creative writing teacher and my art teacher were like fighting over like, no, you should do art. And the other's like, no, you should write. No, you should do art. No, you should write. So I think it is in cathartic expression. Now I've combined the best of both worlds because all of my paintings have writing. <laughs> so it is, it is a way in which I find release and it's a way in which I can really effectually communicate the human condition, my personal human condition, and I think the human condition as a whole. It's figurative work. Frequently, mixed media. I love found objects and reimagining them. And then the writing is usually 
kind of the meanderings of my mind. And so it somewhat mm. plays the role of a, of a diary. I have a, an interesting experience where when I was in my late 20s, early 30s, I was always on the search for my biological mother. Um, and I think that's just something, you know, you always have this want to connect with family, right? Mm -hmm. And so I understand that in our young people, no matter what the experience has been, just wanting to be this part of the family. So uh, Canada has a little more open process in, in finding folks. So I did, I found my biological mom know that I was on this planet and um, she wrote me a letter. You know, the letter echoed the experience I had as that 15-year-old where I'm going to choose my husband over you. And so she, in an eight-page letter, wrote the same thing. It's like, my husband doesn't know that you are alive. And I was like, what is up with these people? So I got really upset and I, wow. I locked myself away for the weekend and I painted this extraordinary painting. I actually drew it out first. Um, so I have that sketch, which I'm, I'm grateful that I kept, but I did this beautiful painting and in the back, just kind of all my thoughts about this experience. And then I burned the letter. I wish I didn't do that, by the way, uh, um, but it was meant yeah. to be. And then I had an art show um, like that next year. I was painting was my uh, primary source of income at the time. And that was the first painting that sold. In that that exhibit, because I think you could really, I mean, the emotional, the emotion is very, very palpable. And so I think that art is such a way, such a tremendous way to really process and reflect on experiences and to be able to release them. And uh, the painting has a home with a very wonderful person and and I was able to release that experience. And Let me ask you, if you, if you right now could go back and talk to your 15-year-old self mm. as an adult, what, what do you think, what would you say? Great question. I think that it's going to be okay. Mm. One of the things that I share with our young folks, and I believe in this very strongly, if you've had a challenged childhood, if you've had trauma and struggle and abuse and, and if you process it, you can't, you can't not do the work, right? Mm -hmm. You have to, you have to reflect on your experience. You have to get support to help you through what your experiences have been. And so that you don't sort of replicate or carry those on that you will have an easier foray into your adulthood. And I, feel that my, my adult life has not been as challenging. So I went through it all already. <laughs> and so that's what I tell our young folks. I was like, you've, you've, you've been through a lot and you've already um, managed more than so many people and you've made it through. And now you have this foundation of knowing what you can make it through. And so it's, to me, sort of an interesting lens in which to manifest, you know, how we progress in, in life. So a very kind of long-winded what I would tell my 15-year-old self. It's like it was hard, um, but, but you're going okay. to be okay and life will, yeah. life will be okay. Yeah, I would I'd like to be able to do that to my um my child self too. Right. I prob probably most people feel that way, but for some 
I think it's even more powerful. Um, okay, this is my last question. Um, and you may or may not want to answer this, but what is the one thing that people would not know about you unless you told them? Well, I just told you that I ran off when I was 20. Not everybody knows that, but some people know that. People know about my billion-dollar invention. Mm-hmm. Well, and now people know my love for sappy Hallmark movies. <laughs> I've been giving away my secrets a little bit at a time. <laughs> Is that your final answer? That's my final answer. I've got a got a few mysteries, but there there's some things that I have to to process before they're released to the world in general. I think a lot of times what at first appear to be a vulnerability or the challenge that ends up being a strength. And I, I bet that's also very true of you, that your childhood experience of trauma has made you an extremely empathetic and effective, <laughs> uh, 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 you know, a really effective person. You help the lives of many, many, many young people and adults. I'm laughing. I'm laughing out loud at that because that was something I was. I was. I was thinking. Oh, I was like, oh, not that not that many people know about this because uh, I just discovered it. I did Twenty uh, Three and Me because um, I mm-hmm. think that's a you know again that people who don't yes. have a base or foundation of of who and I've got kind of this twofold right of being adopted and then in foster care. I, I tease. That's I'm right. like um. You know, by the time I got to my foster mom, I was on my third mom. And so now I'm just collecting moms along the way. So it's, uh, right, it's, uh, right. it's wonderful. <laughs> um, but when I did it, I like one of my top gene markers was that I, I didn't have the gene of empathy. <laughs> Get out. <laughs> That's just dumb. <laughs> and so now we use it as a, I use it as a joke in case. And I, here's the thing is I can be really empathetic, but there is a certain point where I'm like, all right, we've just got to move forward now. You know, so it's where empathy meets, I would say grit of like, yeah, let's just, get like, it, let's just get it done. You know what? Now that you say that about you, I see that there's a certain stoicism that's that says, okay, let's just get past this and move on. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, uh, I thought that was funny and now I use it as somewhat of a crutch when people are like, well, you need, I'm like, sorry, I don't, I don't have the empathy gene. So I'm, uh, <laughs> so I am not biologically built to, <laughs> All right. Well, okay. <laughs> I, I see. That's that's pretty. That's a pretty good um, thing that somebody would know about you yeah. because you appear to be extremely empathetic. Your voice, the way you look, the way you cue into people, how observant you are, how attentive you are, how expressive you are. But the truth is, you don't have the empathy gene. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if there's like fault in that biology, but um, I do, I, you know, and I think it's, I do think you have to work at being empathetic. And I think, mm-hmm. again, that's where something like the haves, where you stop and you stop listening to the friends in your head and you really begin listening to the person who's in front of you, right? There's... You know, we're frequently... Right, go over the halves again for me because, you know, I'm constantly learning them and relearning them. To, to hear. And hear is not only, like, 
the act of listening to to you, but hearing is hearing yourself. And am I ready to step into this whatever experience, this conversation? And it's that moment of saying, "Yes, okay, I'm 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 ready to hear you." My uh, being is ready to to be involved. Then acknowledge is to say, "Oh, I hear you." <laughs> But it's also the opportunity to get clarification, to say, oh, well, Jane, this is what I heard you say. Do I have that right? Right? So it's to ensure that what you're hearing is actually what the person is saying or what they're thinking they're articulating, because sometimes those things are two very different things, what they're saying, what they think they're saying. Yes, they can be. And Mm -hmm. uh, then the next is to, to validate, say, I can understand and that's trying to pull, that's where empathy comes in, and trying to put yourself in that person's shoes. You mean, so as an example, you can say, I understand that you're screaming because you're upset. Yeah. You're telling me that you're upset. Well, you know, I can understand why you would be upset. I might be upset too, if that happened to mm-hmm. me. Okay. Doesn't mean like you, you would be, right? You notice that I right. said, I might be upset. I can understand. It makes mm-hmm. sense. And so, uh, and then that, that, that last piece is to, to shift. And one of the things that we find crucial in the model is a shift doesn't always happen right away. So the shift could happen many years down the road, or it could happen in that moment. The young person you saw me with, it seemed like it happened in that moment. Mm-hmm. The experience that I was sharing with you, I had to re-engage and I have so many times with that young person in order to get that shift in our relationship. Right. Five years later, that shift happens. Five years later. and I. Right, but you plant the seed over and over again. Yes. Right? And I find that this way of engaging with my adoptive brothers, with, you know, just with adults in, in my life these days, also, it's, it's, it's really valuable. It's not only valuable with children, it's valuable with adults, it's valuable in work. It's, yes. I found that to be true, too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Listen, thank you so much. You're a lovely human being. I, mm. I've, I've told you that before, but I want you to hear it again because I truly admire you. I admire the work that you're doing. I also appreciate your ability to empathize, even though you don't have the empathy gene. <laughs> I'm going to use well, that too now. Right? You'll have to go do your... your uh... Your twenty-three and me, or your your gene marker, and find makeup, out that find that out. Yeah. I just thought it was so funny that along with like uh, male baldness is like one of the top. <laughs> great, so I'm, you know. All right, sweetie. <laughs> Thanks so much. Okay, oh, it's my pleasure. I've listened to this recording several times. I keep on going back to it, and I think it's because I find it really inspiring. I hope you do too. Diane, in spite of very difficult early years, she has done the work to make her own happy life. That's what she wants, so that's what she's doing. She's making it happen. And I find that gives me hope. It makes me feel hopeful. So thank you, Diane. Thank you. If you see something, say something. If you suspect that a child's health or safety is jeopardized in any way by parents or anyone else, contact the Child Protective Services Agency in your county. 24-hour hotlines are staffed by trained social workers who will help you through the process, and you can do so anonymously. 
In California, you can call the Child Protection Hotline at 800-540-4000. So if you see something, say something. You might be saving a child's life. I want to thank the supremely talented Christina Apostolopoulos for her beautiful music, Eferisto. To hear more of her music, go to Spotify and Instagram at Christina Apostol. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-I-N-A-A-P-O-S-T-O. I know you want to. Her stuff is really great. And thanks to my audio producer extraordinaire, Marcos Campito. I'm glad I found you. Thanks for listening, and if you like what you hear, please rate us and hit subscribe. <laughs>